All right, everyone. It's it's March the 11th, and um, through the holiday chat season this year, I had been promising a certain number of holiday chats. And for those of you paying attention, we've been one short. And and that's because I wanted to make a really great grand finale at the end of the holidays and 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 do a case study here with Paul. Paul's an intermediary, helps people buy and sell businesses. But like a lot of business deals, this deal was supposed to have closed in November around the time of American Thanksgiving. And then it was supposed to close around Christmas, which would have put it right in line with our holiday chat special. And now it's mid-March. Paul, has the deal closed? Yes, the deal is closed. <laughs> so it's, it's about a four-month delay, right? Uh, that's about right, four months. Yeah. And, now I have to go back and work harder for the next four months. <laughs> we, we, just before I hit record, Paul and I were talking about this because this is something that I've shared in many videos about how these deals never close on time. And if you're looking forward to that commission check to pay your own bills as a business broker, it can be very frustrating when these deals drag on and on. But I wanted to get Paul on because I wanted him to talk to us about this deal because this deal encompasses so many things that are seen regularly in the purchase and sale of a, a, what we'll call a main street business. So a, a regular everyday business that is owner operated by people who know their craft, but probably aren't the most sophisticated business people, quote unquote. And um, I, I'd like to go through this. So, so Paul, why don't we talk a little bit about, about the business? Can you describe what the business was that was sold? Yes, uh, it's a landscape uh, maintenance company uh, okay. that, that had been in business for 40 years. Right. So they were doing lawn mowing and putting in flower beds and things like this for people? Yes, uh, both uh, commercial uh, accounts and uh, residential accounts, about 50-50 in the mix. Okay. So before you became involved, this, these guys, uh, the owners, there were two of them, they were trying to sell before you became involved. Is that correct? Yes, uh, they. Uh, I have another business associate that was also serving as an intermediary, and his expertise was franchise selling. Okay. And he had uh, uh, taken this a client as a referral from somebody, and he was working with. And he engaged me to do the financial analysis and prepare the offering package for him about three years ago. Okay. And and I I prepared that that for him and then he was trying to sell it. And so after you had done your review, what what did you propose would probably be the likely selling price of this business back at that time? Uh, back at that time, uh, I uh, I think the number that I uh, was comfortable with, which was pushing it, uh, was about four hundred and fifty thousand, if I recall correctly. Okay. And the sellers uh, wanted to sell, but they, they, they had two different opinions, of course, all right? Uh, the one seller that was more urgent to sell, his partner wanted to hold out for bigger dollars. Well, the problem is, and they hadn't done anything with the business for five years other than maintain, if you may. And so the, uh, my business associate decided to take the listing and uh, they wanted 600,000 and I think he got them to, to list it at 500 with the hope of getting the 450 uh, of doing it. I, I, I'm not my own personal way of doing it. I, setting it high and hoping to come down low is 
not a good strategy in my opinion. <laughs> well, if you, if you set it too high, then what ends up happening is you scare off your legitimate buyers who are worried that the seller's expectations are just too out of line, that there's not a reasonable person that they can deal with. What ended up happening? Because obviously your, your colleague had this for a couple of years before you got the file. Well, he had it for a couple of years and he had a number of tire kickers. He had multiple meetings with people that were probables. And uh, then one was, I kept hearing, oh, I got a serious buyer. I serious buyer that went on for months. And then finally uh, they got the lawyers involved and uh then they said oh they needed valuation so then they dragged it on to get valuations and then they came back and the guy wanted to pay below valuation and the negotiations all fell apart so it was everybody was upset and the sellers were particularly upset because the lawyers then sent bills to the seller and it hit his bookkeeper's desk and the bookkeeper knew nothing about this and brings it to her is who are these lawyers and why do they want our money, et cetera, et cetera. And of course the sellers had to uh, fix that problem. Right, so right. when you're trying to do a private transaction, you've got to make sure the people in the transaction know what private means. <laughs> so, so the, this business spent a couple of years on the market and, and a business like a landscape maintenance company is, is a business that, you know, many people could probably get their arms around as far as managing and running. Um, it, it's, it's one of those businesses that is very attractive to a wide range of people. And it's one of those businesses that if it's priced right, would tend to sell quite readily. So th this one you, you figure is because they were asking too much. It ended up on the market for such a long time. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Just too many tire kickers and it wasn't going to come down in price and they kept. So the, the, I got a call then from my business associate that said, I, he's not doing anything. He was retiring. He wasn't going to go. And if I wanted to take this over, since I knew the sellers, because I had did their financial analysis. So I met, I met with those sellers and uh, sized up, well, what do you guys really want to do? Well, now they're more urgent because it's right. been two and a half years. And so they, uh, did, they weren't upset with the effort that my associate had, had made. It's, uh, they were unrealistic. And uh, so I told them, let me do the numbers over again and bring them current. So I brought up the next fiscal year, and now I had five years of very true financials. And since I had put considerable time into it before, I knew the numbers, and I knew they were trustworthy. They were good books. They reconciled with the uh, tax returns, and I had already done all of that. So I just had to bring them up to date, calculated the cash flow. It was about 165000 I think it was. And I told them, uh, you know, the assets were maybe about the same. And I said, if you want to sell it, move it on. Somebody need to finance this business. They would still need to have, you know, sixty dollars or $70,000 for themselves to live on. And they would probably need sixty or seventy thousand dollars worth of annual financing to cash flow it. So I said, in order to do that, the price point needs to be three hundred and thirty thousand or three hundred thousand. And I said, and then my transaction fee is going to be ten percent. So it's three hundred thirty thousand. That's what we're listed for, and I believe we can deliver it. 
and and they said well we, they would be even willing to sell for 300 and uh less transaction fees and net 270. and and what was the state of the capital equipment in the business all of the machinery trucks etc uh, it was in good condition, but all very old, very mm-hmm. old. I mean, it, it, the, the trucks, probably the newest truck was four years old. The oldest truck was 12 years old of a, maybe a dozen trucks. So most of the equipment was pretty aged, but it was operable and it was maintained. Okay. So, so once you had them on board and you determined they were a little bit more motivated and they're willing to set a much more reasonable asking price than before, what, what then happened as far as find your efforts to find someone to buy it? Well, what I uh, did initially is I had my own local network of, of people. So I called around to people that I thought were probable candidates, people that have owned businesses, people that had a reason to maybe own a landscaping company, like a property management company mm-hmm. and some of those. And I got that network going so that uh, the word was out that I had something to offer. And, and most of those referrals were personal referrals from my personal network I've built up over the years, right? And uh, they were not, if you may, new buyers. These were proven business people. Right. And they, uh, uh, I, I'm guessing I probably had six to 10 of those that I, I put out NDAs and put the package out with them. They reviewed them. And out of those, I think I had two or three real interests uh, and one uh, crazy offer, one reasonable offer, and one no offer out of that, out of my personal. So uh, I, uh, I, I introduced some of those people to the sellers, and uh, they were okay with them, but not really enthusiastic because they were deals, all right, trying to take them out, all right, get them right. out. And they, at that point, thought they should get a quote unquote real buyer or whatever, right? So I then listed it on the, uh, the commercial sites, this buy, sell and the other types of sites. And I, I, was, I received over probably two, three months, uh, I think 40, 45 inquiries. Okay. Uh, I processed them. My process was as soon as I got an inquiry, uh, within that day, they got a, a response email with a, a cover sheet, three-page summary, and if they were capable of pursuing it, they could show me where they're going to get the money, how they're going to do it, and over a telephone conversation, which I would have with them, then they should respond with the NDA, and I'll send them the package. Mm-hmm. I did that. Uh, typically, that turnaround was 48 hours. They would get a package. Those that were interested then and, and thought they were qualified would call me. And we would go through an interview process where I would basically size them up and mm-hmm. determine if, if they really did have the money or the possibility of getting it. Uh, I, you know, and, and it's just intuition at that point, all right? And, and fun things that range from people that didn't have a clue about buying a business and, and wanted to learn, and I would educate them the best I could and then tell them, you know, the mark is you actually have to have money. Right. In many cases, they didn't. They just had hope. Right. And all the way to the other ones, one that was the most fun. Did, was, did you have Did you have anyone that you spoke to who didn't have any money but <clears throat> believed that they could still figure out a way to get it done? 
Oh yeah, I had I had one very entertaining one. Let me come back to that one. But I had another entertaining one that got me. He sounded very serious. He knew everything about everything, and I. So he got me on the phone. He spent an hour with me on the phone, asking me everything about what the size of the toilet paper was in the in the restroom. And so after about 40 minutes of that, I said, you know, you don't sound like a buyer to me. You sound like a real estate broker, all right? <laughs> and an accountant. And then he backed off or whatever. Well, lo and behold, after I get off the phone, I searched him. And sure enough, he was a California real estate guy who had just moved here to, and, uh, and, and was out shopping businesses or whatever, all right? So the reason I bring that up is, Honesty is the best policy on all of these things. And you never know uh, what's going on, and particularly with the internet. Yeah. You can search and find out. I mean, I know more about this person that was inquiring on the phone now than he knows about himself based on the research. Because I was, I was not happy that I was trapped into a phone call and pressed on all these things. Now, he didn't learn anything any more than what was in the offering package. But why was he wasting my time when, in fact, he was trying to manipulate? So it would seem to me, and, and I, I know you, you present buying and selling and, and honor and trying to educate people on, come on, just be real. And it's the in it. There's got to be trust between the two parties, especially when you start to, you know, the business seller will reveal secrets about the business or things that they do. They have to trust that buyer and, and the buyer has to be able to trust the seller. And, and if there's no trust, then you can forget the idea of any kind of seller financing, you know, if the seller doesn't trust the buyer. But so what do you believe his purpose was? He was a former real estate guy and he moved into the area was he really looking to buy a business as a to get an income for himself, or or do you think he was trying to, uh, you know, find a, a buyer, or make some kind of brokerage play himself? Like, what do you think was it, going on? It was possible that he was interested in doing something for himself, but it was he was a he was a shooter. I'd call him. He he was. He looks like he was doing a roll up because when you check out his bio in in California or whatever. He, he was into mergers, acquisitions, one of these young guys that think they know everything about everything, and, and they're putting it together. That was the sense that I got. So mm -hmm. from a chemistry standpoint, I knew that was not going to play with our sellers because, come on, these are a couple of old timers that have built a business with a career, and the last thing they need is another manipulation thing. So to your point, when it comes down to and it, it, I, I'm there as the qualifier to help both the buyer and the seller get a transaction. Right. And I'm not trying to, if you may, help the seller, screen the seller, or, or, or excuse me, help the buyer or screen the buyer or help the seller or screen the seller. I'm trying to bring a transaction together. And when I sense that there's not going to be honor, it, it, you know that it'll break down sometime. It's just a matter, do I want to put four months into what's going to turn out to be a dishonorable at the last minute situation? And, 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 and that's the key, isn't it? Because, because you have done enough deals to know that these take months to put together. And if you don't put the deal together, you're not going to get a paycheck. And so you need to have an idea from the beginning that the deal is something possible and that the people are going to get along 
And, and really, uh, a lot of the times when I'm talking with people and when I'm talking in my group coaching program, <clears throat> we talk a lot about these soft interpersonal skills because without that foundation laid to make a good solid relationship between the parties, um, nothing, it will never ultimately come. And I, I made that mistake when I was starting off a few times where I was eager to make a deal. And so I would say, Hey, you know, seller wants to sell. This is the only guy who's come along to buy. We, we should try to fit this, this peg in this hole somehow, even though I'm not sure what shape they are. And you, it always ends up burning you in the end. And eventually you learn not to waste your time that way. Exactly. And, and, and I think uh, anybody that's either buying or selling that you're coaching and working with, if they will adopt the attitude that particularly, let's call real estate people and or uh, business brokers or intermediaries or whatever, they're, they're on commission. They, they have all the interest in the world to try to bring the parties together. And they ought to be treated that way and, and developed that way and don't try to hide something from them. Now, that doesn't mean you have to undress every issue of your life. That's the other side of it. People say, oh, I've got to be vulnerable. i got to tell them this. I was out on a transaction the other day and two hours of this person's life story, I walked out and saying, man, I don't know if I want to want to deal that. So it, 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 it's about the transaction. This is a business transaction, not trying to solve all life's problems, right? Yeah. But once you identify that, isolate and be very crystal clear and honest and honorable about all the business aspects, because you will be found out. Tell me about the guy who didn't have any money, who still wanted to try to make a deal. Oh. Well, yeah, this was kind of fun. And he was one of the earliest, he was the first one. And he was so enthusiastic and, and wanted to move ahead. So I pressed the sellers. I said, this person said he'd never been in business. He doesn't know, but he, he wants to leave his corporate job and come do it. And he, and he really wants a young guy and he's been a gardener and he really wants to do it. He's kind of what you were saying is this is a kind of opportunity, the size of opportunity that, somebody could really get their start and then build themselves a good business for a year. So he came and it was really nice a person and brought his wife and brought his brother or brother-in-law or somebody in. And they admitted they knew nothing about it would need help on the counseling, but they were going to go out and get financing and they were really enthused about getting into business for themselves. And the, the wife, of course, you can read it is struggling with it because now the husband's going to leave his full-time job and, and go in and all of those issues. All right. But we didn't dwell on any of that. And so the sellers liked them and thought, okay, if this is a potential buyer, Paul, go ahead, you know, move ahead. He said, but we're nervous because they've never, they don't have experience. All right. Yeah. And so I started working with them and encouraged them. They said, okay, I'm going to get the SBA or the financing involved. I'm lining this pre-qualified and, and all the positives of, of how they're going to do it. Well, then I get a call and say, gee, I got a consultant that's been in the business and whatever and knows a lot. I'm going to hire him. Can you send him the information? I said, yeah. He signs an NDA. I said, you're hiring a consultant. And basically, uh, so you're not upset? I said, I'm not upset. I, I said, you know, if you got an advisor or whatever, check the numbers, check it all out. So, okay. So he goes that, then the, the advisor calls. And so I, of course I do research on the advisor 
And I found who the advisor knows and this, that, the other thing, and solid character, all right? And so I talked to this business So advisor. this is a guy from, from like land, the landscape industry somewhere? He's been in the industry. Okay. He knows stuff. He contacted And then, of course, you can check his pedigree out because you got Google and LinkedIn right. and everything else. So I called the guy and I said, hey, this is that. Well, I've been around the business long enough. I said, you know, so-and-so. So we know people. We both know people. And immediately then we have a positive relationship. So I said, well, what do you want? What do you do? And he said, so he said, well, just send me the, the numbers or whatever. And any questions I got, I'll just call you back. I said, good. So I said, but an hour later, he calls me back. He said, man, this is a hell of a package. And I don't know if I had sent you in the past one of my other packages or whatever, but I do a very, very rigorous offering package. And he said, there isn't anything else really that one can expect here. I said, let me just talk to him if he needs coaching or whatever. And he's, if he wants to do it, he says, there's nothing here, Paul, that would prevent it. It's financeable. It's this. And he knew yeah. all of the acumen. And he said he could use it as a platform to build. So he saw it immediately within an hour. He read it within an hour. He called me back. He said, let me see if he wants to hire me to do that. And then I'll coach him. That. Well, then the next well, I never heard from him again, all right? If something came by my desk today, his name came up again, so I may be seeing him <laughs> next couple of weeks. And this is how life is and works, you know, people stay in the in the business. But anyway, this so this young person then calls me, and so he says, I guess the advisor said he wants to do it, but he wants me to hire him as a consultant and pay him. I, I said, well, oh, weren't you doing that? He says, oh, no, he gave me that free advice. Oh, okay. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> So he now wants to hire me. I said, but I want to make an offer. I definitely want to make an offer. I said, okay. So I, I send a, a purchase agreement, all right, made out, conformed, standard stuff that, that we use in the business. And so now he wants to adjust it, this and that. The other thing, I said, all right, so we'll meet. So I said, okay, put your change numbers in there and we'll meet. So I meet with them the next day. And to present the offer, and I go through it all, and he doesn't have the numbers in there. And I said, well, look, here, you wanted these numbers, put them in here. He said, well, I can't. I said, well, what do you mean you can't? My wife won't let me. I said, well, what do you mean? He said, and I looked at it, I said, well, this isn't even signed. He says, no, I can't sign it until I get a lawyer. I said, well, when are you going to hire a lawyer? And he said, well, I, I'm not going to sign, get a lawyer until the buyer tells me that they're going to sell it to me. Right. So now I'm really confused. <laughs> so the point of all that, we could go in all of the other dialogue, but the point was the naivety of a buyer sometimes is such that they're not bad people. They just don't know that. I mean, do you want to buy it or, or not buy it? Do you, do you want to, you've engaged a consultant that you don't want to pay. You got a lawyer that you don't want to pay. You, and you don't want to sign the agreement so I can present it as an offer, but you want me to present an offer. All right. And, 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 and see how the other party feels maybe. I, right. Or yeah. accept. So anyway, so that comes to an end and I, and I just shrugged my shoulder. So then that kind of upset me, sent me an email of how, how I wasn't cooperative or whatever. And I thought, I, I don't know, I can't cooperate in anything if I don't have anything to, to do. Well, the next thing I get a call from a, another business broker in town 
and uh, he said he's representing this guy. And I said, oh, yeah, I said, I, I know. And, and uh, he said, well, he wants, you want to share commissions? And I said, well, not really. I said, I've already spent a month talking to the guy. <laughs> and, and I said, <laughs> and I, this is what happened. So I shared my reaction. He said, yeah, I know. I've talked to him, and he sounds a little confused or this, that, the other thing. I said, so then he calls me back. He says, he says he, I'll be the a buying broker. And I said, well, it's fine with me if he wants to pay you as a consultant, buying broker or whatever. I'll work with you and, and do it. I'd be happy to do it. But nothing ever manifests on that other than more and more emails about why won't you sell this to me, all right, uh, business. So, it, And so it, he never actually wrote an offer that you could show to the seller? No, and neither did his buying broker who supposedly was going to represent him, all right? Because the buying broker ran into the same thing I did. He said he wouldn't sign anything unless he had a lawyer, but he wouldn't hire a lawyer unless, because he didn't want to pay. So it was, to, to him, it was all about, I think, permission. He really didn't have, let's call it family permission. Hmm. And he really didn't have uh, confidence in, in being able to do it. And he, he didn't have the willingness to hire the professionals. He obviously had connections with lawyers and professionals and whatever. But uh, the, the, the point comes down to in qualification. When you're the seller, the qualification is, are you serious and are you urgent enough and are you realistic? Hmm. And yeah. then the buyer, are you real and do you have money? And yes. do you have the ability to execute the transaction? Yeah. And so from anybody's standpoint in the, in the world that is involved in buying and selling, I think they have to do a lot of personal self-reflection and understand, which is why I think your coursework and your various seminars and what's so available to people on your channel and everything else is so valuable to them because if they can't get through what you're walking them through, if they don't have the time or the interest, the inclination, the skill set to digest that and discipline themselves to execute on it, it's only going to get worse. It's only yeah. going to be painful for them and for everybody else they touch. <laughs> so I wish everybody would go through your material. And <laughs> That's a great idea. Everybody should. <laughs> whether, by the way, whether buyer or seller. Right? Yeah, I, that's why it's out there. So eventually you did meet somebody who did become the buyer. Why don't you, why don't you tell us well, then, about yeah, how yeah, you met then, this person? Uh, during those leads, one of them was another young, enthusiastic person that was just all over it, right? And, uh, and said that he wanted to do it. So he never been in business. He just had a lot of passion. He was a young guy. I was all old. He was in his twenties, this and that. But he said, I'm going to the bank. Can you get me? The so I sent him the package. All right. And, uh, he took it to the bank and he called me back. He was on fire. The bank said they can finance it. It looks, they could do SBA. They could do this and that. Yeah. Okay, great. So, so he was hell bent for election. Then we get this done. And, and he was responsive. It, he was interested when he had a question, he called me and he was engaged. Mm -hmm. So he had one of the criterion, number one criterion. He had the passion to make this happen. I didn't know if he had anything else other than the passion to make it happen. All right. So then I get a call from his banker and his bankers 
I, he said, can I get the tax returns? And I says, not until we get a purchase agreement and this, that, and the other thing. And I said, but I can tell you as a banker and as a financial analyst, I said, all the numbers that you see in that package are identical to the numbers that are in the tax return. <laughs> So, so there, were, there were no great, there, there weren't a lot of ad backs or, or personal expenses hidden in the business you had to adjust for. It was a pretty cleanly run operation. Yeah, there was, there was no personal expenses you had to adjust for other than owner's life insurance or something. Yeah. And, uh, 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 and both owners used a truck, took the, they was, it was a working truck, but they took it home at night and that's about it. Everything else was clean and, and the numbers, I mean, reconciled by the accountant all the way through for five years. So I figure after looking at five years worth, <laughs> there wasn't, a, and there was never any, what's this expense? Where'd this 42,000 come from? None of that over a five year period. So I was pretty, uh, I liked the book. I like, that's the way I do my work. I, I do rigorous financial analysis before I deal with it because I know I'm going to end up doing it in the end. And I'm not willing to spend four months of my time and then show up and find a surprise. All right. Now I did in this case. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Because you know that in the States with the SBA program, the SBA, of course, they want to make sure that they're friends with the other big government department, the IRS. So that they want to use the tax return numbers to see if it cash flows, if the buyer is going to be able to afford to make those payments. And, you know, I actually, earlier today, I was having a conversation with someone and they were looking at a business with so many ad backs that the, the, the tax returns and what they were presenting to the buyer didn't match at all. And I said, this is fantastic. These guys have made this business unbankable. So no one's going to be able to borrow money to buy it, which means you can negotiate a better deal for yourself. But, but these sell clients of yours, obviously, they were better prepared for a banker to examine the business, which is good to hear. And so this guy was enthusiastic. He went to the bank. The bank liked the numbers initially. They wanted to look deeper. You did finally get that purchase offer, did you? Well, here's what happened. So then he said, can we come see the business? And I said, yeah. And he said, I want to bring uh, He said, my dad. I said, great. All right. And it's a good thing he did because he was a young, enthusiastic guy. And he even told me when we we're there, boy, I'm sure glad I brought my dad. Because his dad was a more mature, been in business, asked right questions, knew something about the landscaping business, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. So it was a good chemistry. It was good. The, the sellers now felt like, boy, if we sold this, these people could take care of my customers. He actually has a clue what this equipment looks like. Yeah. He's asking uh, mature questions. And even though the young man is, is enthusiastic, I, I, I believe, I trust the father. And so that's the seller's perspective, going back to what you're saying. Hey, can these people take care of the business and my employees if I do sell it to them? In this case, if it would have just been the young man, he could not have inured enough confidence in order to get the sellers engaged and do it. But anyway, it was good chemistry. So then a question was, okay, guys, you're going to make an offer. All right. And I had uh, previously made arrangements with the sellers of what was reasonable was put 10% down on a purchase agreement and then the balance over some schedule. And so they show up and they adjust the 10% and only put 1% down just to cement the purchase agreement. As a deposit, you mean? As a deposit. Okay. Right. And then they said, but they'll make the other 
9% of the 10% we requested within 30 days because they had to go out and get that money to put it down and then they get the bank financing uh, 30 days after that. So it'd be a 60 day deal. So with that 60 day conditioning, I, we took the 1%, the sellers accepted it and we moved forward. Okay. Well, that's good news, except 30 days later when the other 9% was due, they failed to deliver it. And they failed to deliver the other 9% because of this, because of that, all kinds of reasons. Well, that doesn't inert too much trust on the seller's half, so I got to keep that relationship going. That, wait a minute, let's let them do it. They got good reasons why to do it. They didn't want to put the other 9% down until the bank had committed to them that they were actually going to process the loan. Okay. And, and, and fill it with an FBA and it was going to be doable. So, so the deposit, Paul, let me ask you this. It, in your state, what is normal? Does the broker hold the deposit or did it go right to the seller? I had it made out to the attorney. Right? To the attorney. Okay. So the attorney and, would hold it in his trust. Yeah. So the buyers weren't confident that they could arrange some sort of trust agreement where if the, if the financing didn't come through that they could get their deposit back. Uh, I don't even, I, I forget the details, even in the purchase agreement, I think it was a refundable uh, or I, I, I forget whether it was stated refundable or not refundable. I think it was maybe not refundable. So that was their concern unless oh, okay. the bank had committed to them that they were going to get the other 90%. They didn't want to put their 10% in. So they were skittish. They were afraid. They didn't want to lose that money, which is completely understandable. Sure. And, and, and the rules about this stuff and the way people negotiate is a little bit different by locality I've seen over time. So, so they had the money, but they didn't want to give it until the banker had given the, given the blessing. Right. Until the banker said, yeah, we're going to be able to process this loan and get this done for you. All right. Okay. And so, so there was a delay then at the bank. There's a delay at the bank. That's one of many delays. So we, uh, because we, we, we know that there. we have to somehow get up to four months of delay. So. Right. Well now, now we're at. Now was this around Christmas time? Yeah. I'm trying to think it was October, end of October. Now it's end of November The this delay. And one of these delays was get the IRS. What people may not be aware of is, uh, to your point, the SBA will only look at IRS documents. They will not right. look at tax returns from your, so the first request is get me the tax return. So I get the tax returns from the accountant. Well, that's the sellers or buyers asking for that. The problem is the bank asked the buyers to get the tax returns. Once the tax returns go to the bank, then somebody else that knows what they're doing in the bank about SBA loans says, oh, no, we can't take those tax returns. We have to get them. I think it's a 4506T or something, a document that has to be sent directly to the IRS. And the IRS has to send them the That's document. That's right. And, there's no, and you can't have what, anybody else handle it. And what one of my other clients learned recently is the IRS sends them by mail. Yeah. <laughs> a couple of weeks. So, so anyway, there's a couple more weeks. All right. Yeah. And, and uh, so at this point in time, be frank with you, I'm kicking myself in the butt. Okay. Because as soon as I heard it was an FBA, it said to me, Paul, I think you better go get all the SBA documents and fill this out for them. 
because if I wait for them to fill it out, it may delay things. And I didn't do that. I just kind of, oh yeah, we got it on control. The bank's really good and all these other things. And I listened to that story. And from, from now on, anytime there's an SBA, I will require the buyer to sit with me and complete all the paperwork. All right. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Because I know I'll get it done correctly and no SBA specialist will find an error in the work because I will have done it according to what I know needs to be done because what happens in these things is every week there is another thing that the SBA specialist finds. Right. You already pointed one out, the unbankable version, right? Yeah. In this situation, it was not that it wasn't unbankable. They had five years of P&Ls. When they got them from the IRS, there was one year that there was a loss, right? And then you had the loss carried for it. On average, it was very profitable. But on the year of a loss, now it's a red alert to the SBA. You had one year, it's a loss. Now you need to rewrite your business plan and we need detailed cash flows by month. Yep. <laughs> Right. And uh, so they just keep raising the the dialogue and the ante on, on all of that data. Well, if you know all that's coming and it's all written in the SBA requirements document, you, you could have done that ahead of time. So right. now in, in my case, because I've, I've in, and you've been at this uh, a long time, but I haven't found it typical of a business intermediary to have done the level of financial analysis that I've done on my projects, all right? They usually, when you say, oh, by the way, what was the monthly cash flow? Then they say, oh, we gotta go hire an accountant and get that all figured out. When, when, I, was, when I was doing brokerage deals back when my office was still open, I, I would sit with people and write full business plans with usually two or three years of monthly cash flow statements. It, when, whenever real estate agents would say to me, oh, you business brokers have such a high rate of commission, I would say, yeah, but we're doing the appraiser's job, the realtor's job, and the mortgage broker's job, if you want to draw the analogy to real estate, because we're showing people what the business is worth, then we're finding the buyer, and then we're having to do all the work to help the buyer get the financing, which usually means to your point, preparing cash flow and business plan, and then taking them oftentimes to friendly bankers we know are likely going to want to do the deal that, that we already have a relationship with. And exactly you, right. you, you didn't know these bankers, did you? This was the. No, I did not know these bankers. And, and the, but as this thing dragged on, what I do have a couple of bankers that'll do SBA, and I was within inches. I asked the seller, the buyers, I says, give me all the paperwork that you've done so far, I'll get this financed because I could have gone to a couple of my other uh, friendlier bankers that were more in tune to, to get this thing pushed through. But by that time, it was almost, almost complete. But one of the things that uh, uh, your financial analysis course that you just completed here and released mm -hmm. is an essential piece of the ingredients. And the typical broker, mortgage broker, uh, say a uh, real estate, they won't do that kind of level of detail. But the truth is, if you want honest financing by a real bank, and it's not some family or friends deal, they're going to throw at it and not look at it. You need to do the level of thinking that your course requires. 
Yeah. And if you don't do that, two things. Number one, it really isn't going to be bankable by, by the general banking community. Number two, you really have no idea what you just bought. You, you, you bought yourself a, a cash flow problem in 30 days that you just didn't understand. Well, you know, it's, it's interesting because I mean, we've so far in this conversation, we've talked about cash flows. We've talked about forecasts and we've talked about buyers with no money. I recently saw a little video on the internet and it was talking about one of these no money down guru type deals that was being offered. And he was giving an example. He said, if this business has um, half a million dollars of EBITDA and there's a million dollars worth of equipment, he said, if that, that business will be worth one and a half million dollars, we can put up the million dollars of equipment as collateral with a uh, asset-based lender. We can borrow half that. So we'll get a $500,000 down payment. And then in year two and three, we can give the $500,000 of EBITDA to the seller to pay him off for the business. And I thought, so you're going to commit 100% of EBITDA to debt service. And I thought, what about the taxes? What about replacing any equipment that breaks down? <laughs> what about, like, there, there's so many other real life expenses that come out after these cash flow numbers that are being used to value businesses. And to a person who's been in business or someone with any kind of accounting or bookkeeping experience, they would think for five seconds about that statement and realize that it didn't make sense. But the problem is, is that a lot of business buyers, are, are people who are not in the finance space. They're not an accountant. They're in some job they don't like and they, they want to be a business owner and they want to buy a business to avoid risk. And they'll see things like that and get drawn into it and think that it's real. And, you know, if you, I've, more than once I've seen people who have overcommitted their cash flow to debt service. And, and when you say things to them like, do you realize the principal portion of a debt payment is not an expense? They'll say, well, what do you mean? They'll say, well, that loan payment to the bank, only the interest part is an expense. The other part of it is not. So you could end up giving all of your cash to the bank for debt service and still have a profit on paper and owe the government income tax. Right. And, 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 and people who are not familiar with this stuff don't get it. You actually have to plan it out and make a forecast so that you can understand truly what cash is available and what other bills you're going to have to pay like income tax. Exactly. And, and what I've seen most often is people are totally ignoring operating capital. Yes. Working capital. And, and they want to, because it's, it's so pleasant to make the deal work. The deal will work if you can totally ignore working capital <laughs> and, and they, not they're not trying to be bad they're just enthusiastically wanting to not look at working capital problems <laughs> because they know the deal will go and that's what you're articulating there and yep. the tax do, doing in a whole bit so uh, i'm thinking of the delays so so we're moving through and all these issues keep coming up uh, the bank needs more credit info on the buyer the irs wants more info for a five-year p l uh, the bank needs appraisals now. Oh, oh, now they call me up with appraisal. I said, well, we, we have that. Oh, but they got to get a third-party appraisal. Right? On the equipment or on the business value? On the equipment and business value, if you may. Right. All right. 
And so, uh, fine, you go do it. Well, that's two weeks, right? And you can't talk to them and send this. Oh, so then the appraisal guy gets it. And the appraisal guy says, wait a minute, we don't have titles for all these. We got to do title search on every vehicle. We have to do a title search on every, on every uh, trailer, et cetera, et cetera. And they probably found some old liens that had never been properly removed. Exactly. There's liens on some of them. And, and uh, so now, fortunately, uh, I, I have a very detailed due diligence ledger that, that I do. And I had quietly, on behalf of the sellers, built all that stuff up because I knew at some time it was going to be done. So every time there was one of these inquiries, my turnaround time was hours. They said, I need titles on every vehicle. Within two hours, I could send them a PDF with that. I, we need this. We need that. And that was not because I'm a genius. I'd just been there before. And I said, I'm going to yeah. need this stuff sometime. And so I had it in my, so I'm in my office. I get the inquiry. I turn it around. I don't have to go out to the company, search their files, find it, copy it, send it in. Well, what happens is that would take, that this thing still wouldn't have closed if I had not all of those documents already in my possession, all right? Yeah. Including leases and every nuance of, of the lease and in all of those things. So getting all those titles and insurances, their insurance contract, at the very last minute, they're ready to do closing. And the bank says, oh, we don't have their uh, uh, workman's comp insurance, or we don't know if any of this equipment, we're taking lien title on all these equipments, we don't know if it's insured. You know, and I'm going, SBA specialist, could, could you not even read your own documents? <laughs> they, it says you got to attach a copy of, of, your, of your insurance certificates on all of your vehicles and wherever. Well, I had already done that. I mean, I have a property and casualty license, so I, 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 I know the insurance field so a little bit. Was this so a share deal or an asset sale? Pardon? Was this a share deal or an asset sale? It was a share deal. Stop. It was okay. So the 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 existing contract for prop, uh, casualty insurance for the equipment and everything that stuff was all being carried along. Yes. With okay, so so the insurance would already be in place because if it were an asset deal, of course, then the buyers would have to create their own entity LLC or whatever they were going to set up, and then they would have to go get their own insurance, probably have a, a binder at least or a letter from an insurance agent saying that everything was going to be covered from the, the day the transaction occurred. Right. If, in fact, it was an asset sale, you're right. The list of experts, lawyers, accountants, real estate people, uh, 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 state licensing bureaus that would have had to been chased down on this, it'd be next Christmas before this. <laughs> <laughs> because there's so many laws and yeah. and. Days in, in the USA with, with the financial security and nobody can sign on. I mean, it's ridiculous what they put you through now. I, I tried to make a bank deposit the other day and they literally through the window, you know, and you give them a check, deposit this check. They had to send the check and a deposit slip bank to me so I could put in the money, $2,000. Unless I personally wrote on the $2,000 on the deposit slip, they would not accept the deposit. That's how oh. stupid it's gotten. <laughs> yeah, I, I have a friend who's an insurance agent and, and one of the, he, he's a broker. So he has different lines with different companies and 
and he got audited and they, they just had this huge stack of paper with little tags where, where things were not initialed on the right place and all this yeah. kind of thing. And it's just, you're right. The, you know, I guess if there were ever a lawsuit or, or something or an investigation, that one little missing thing creates a whole branch of liability for another party. So everyone's just trying to protect themselves so much. It, it ends up creating this very inefficient environment for, for getting things done. Oh, it's, it's awful. And in the insurance, annuity, financial, property, and casualty business, those little tags, on a typical insurance application, there's uh, 15 places where an agent signs and at least 15 places where the customer signs. And if any of those are not signed within a certain date, if the check that they're putting as a deposit is three days later than what was put in the account, they send it all back. You start all over again and you have to get the entire set of every place re-signed. And it's just, it's, it's really pretty crazy. But at any rate, so the titles, the better you have to get a business plan, as you already articulated yeah. before, that is in concert with the SBA requirements. Now, the best VA might be the most rigorous, but every bank is pretty much the same as that. If you can't pass that uh, SBA criterion, you're going to have a problem with your bank somewhere down the line anyway on, yeah. on general financing. Clean titles. Uh, then it comes down to, this was an interesting one that, that I hadn't heard before, but I learned later because that in this sale, we were selling the accounts receivables and the payables because it was just taking over the whole corporation. All right. right. So the, the, the uh, two things, one, the bank that was writing the SBA loan told them to go out and get other financing for their receivables. Okay. And the reason is their bank processing is such that they will not take clients below a million dollars in receivables. For, for a receivable line of credit. Exactly. Because the cost of processing receivable, they only want big boys. And right. they say, you got to go find yourself another banker. And, and, and just for everyone listening, the reason for that is that if a bank gives you a line of credit specifically for receivables, they're going to require uh, an aging list from time to time, may, sometimes even as often as monthly. And some banker is going to make sure that the, the limit of that line of credit is not too high for the actual amount of receivables that you have. And if it's too small a deal, then there's just not enough earnings in the interest for it to make sense for the bank to have a person doing that work. And so, so this is why they'll have a minimum like this. And a lot of the times a banker will tell you they'll get you a receivables line of credit. But when you sign and, and actually look at the paperwork, they're just giving you a general line of credit that you're personally guaranteeing. And they're, they're letting you self-police that uh, because they don't have the resources. And it doesn't make sense for them to examine your receivables every month or quarter if it's not enough money. Exactly right. And, and that old way of banking where you had your local community bank or whatever that could do that, that local bank officer had ways of tracking that and they could do it because they knew with character and credit and they saw the person every day coming in and out of their bank and they knew all of that. Today, it's just total automation. Mm. It's total social distancing. Nobody knows anything. Only the computer knows. And if you don't have a million dollars worth of receivables, they don't want their computer tied up. 
trying to do it. It's really fascinating, but that is, that's a significant thing that will delay a deal. And in this case, could have really delayed the deal. <laughs> so how much were the receivables approximately? Uh, about, uh, I'm trying to think, 50, 60, 55, 60,000, I think, something like okay. that. And so they were told to go talk to somebody else about getting a receivables line of credit. And who did they go to? They went to another bank. And what did the bank say over there? Uh, I didn't get engaged in that detail, but it was the bank that one of the parties had been banking with for a long time and apparently had a personal. So my guess is that he not only had to secure it with receivables, but he probably had a personal guarantee on it. Yeah. Who knows? Some of these banks, they're so crazy to make you back it up with your 401k or, or something. I mean, they, they get into you as deep as you can with your house and everything else. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If they, if they can get it, they'll take it. Yeah. So I don't know what he ended up doing, but but that was why the subsequent delay on the receivables when we went to close. All right, to, 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 you know the the part of the story. Let me cover a couple more delays, and then we'll get to that. Right? Okay. The sellers. Uh, let me see. Oh, then as we're getting close to finishing up all of this, I'm trying to make sure that the receivables aging was accurate to get it closed on the 31st. I get a cutoff date. So this is right down to the wire now. And uh, at the wire, then I find out from the sellers that on the books, a loan that shows on the books that they had shown as equity was actually a loan from a bank <laughs> that was a corporate loan, all right? So I got him to pull out the corporate and I say, you guys come up with some money. You go down and pay that loan off. I says, because once, once these assets, I says, I haven't seen it, but somewhere in that paperwork, it's going to say that there are no other banking liabilities. <laughs> well, yes, exactly. Because the, the bank who's doing the SBA loan, they want to be in first position in this, in this company's capital on, on the liability side of the balance sheet. They want to be in the first position uh, with with security over everything, and if that other loan was in there first, then by the time they get to the registry office and they realize that they can't get, you know, their lien registered the way they want it, the money isn't going to be delivered. Exactly, and that yeah. would be one more delay. <laughs> yeah, and so we, I didn't want that to happen. So I got the unfortunately the owners had money and they went and paid off their loan and they got that bank cleared out and. And so everything now that receivable, everything was free and clear. All the other assets were already free and clear because they were old aged assets. And, and there were some commercial uh, trade payables or whatever, but they were all current all up to that day. So there wasn't anything of great danger, let's call it. It, it, right. it was clean books, clean balance sheet. Everything was reconciled and accurate. And uh, so uh, that's all cleaned up. In, in setting up the sale, I had a transaction attorney that handled, and he was kept current with all of this. And then right that weekend prior to the closing, I was able to give him all of the remaining issues. And he prepared all of the paperwork. And that was at a, at a fixed cost that was split between the buyer and the seller, which was a very, and I've done that in previous transactions. It's a great way to do it if there's cleanliness and there's not a lot of acrimony between buyer and seller and all of that and they're all being uh 
uh, forthright, it's better and cleaner just to have one guy make sure all the legal stuff is filed properly and all the liens and everything is done. They agreed to all of that and, uh, you know, reduces the cost. They just split the cost back, paid the attorney. Uh, but then uh, uh, the, uh, in late, the more delays for other reasons, I think I've already covered the delays. So here we are at the end of, end of January and the bank decides that, boy, this loan could be processed and booked back in a 2019 booking. So from a bank profitability standpoint, it was they were now incentivized to try to get this loan closed. <laughs> okay, because of their fiscal year end or something. Exactly, fiscal year end on December 31st. So the sellers, they're delaying and delaying and we're not getting it closed and everybody's getting nervous of whether this is gonna happen and all with all of this work. And so then they say, hey, the bank called and they want to close next week. I said, okay, good. Why, why that change? They said, well, they figured out that if they do it by next week, it'll qualify for their last year fiscal year. And so the point of me bringing that up in every transaction, it was just a reminder to me, in every transaction, everybody is interested in only one thing, and that's themselves. <laughs> and so it's important for buyers, sellers, intermediaries, everybody to make a list of all the players. And in this case, the bank was a player. Yeah. The SBA is a player. That's different than the bank, right? Yeah. And then the attorney's a player. And then the seller in this case, there's two sellers. They're both players. And then there's buyers. And then the buyer's son, they're players. And then the buyer's accounts receivable banker is a player. And, and so when you make the list of players on making these transactions come true, and the buyer's wife, and the seller's wife, and, the, and, and all the other influences, the list typically gets up to 30 people or so. And to keep things moving and secured and happening, you have to be alert to 30 people. And in the closing room, you go in there and all kinds of people, in this case, a new attorney showed up. <laughs> what is he doing here? Well, he was hired by one of the parties to come and look over one of the documents. Well, that's okay. If we'd have known ahead of time, we'd have sent him the document. <laughs> all right. Who, so who was he sent by? By the seller, by the buyer, all right? He, oh, he wow, was, okay. Now, I don't know that if he was there really helping him with the banking documents, and or our documents or whatever, but it was a new party. All right. Wow. And and that's the point that I want I want to make is on all these transactions, knowing who all the parties are, who all the players are, you can do your due diligence, you can prepare, you can resolve any issues they might have. The worst thing that happens in these things is at the last minute somebody shows up and wants their dollar seventy-three, all right? Yeah. And, and, and well, now they're going to hold up the whole deal because they've decided that they got to have their dollar 73 for something. All right. And, and it's a problem. All right. It's. So, so now that the bank was suddenly excited and anxious to get it done on their timeline, did that l l open the path for things to happen more quickly? Did it, did it happen in the yeah, time? It, no, it happened within, uh, I want to say 10 days or so. Sure. No, it, yeah. They moved ahead and they had everything that they needed now because we'd done all these other things. And there was only one they needed a, a lease, a, the, the lease come, 
excuse me, the property lease company to to give them access to the property or something. They had some agreement. Well, then trying to negotiate that, of course, they didn't want to sign it. They want to sign their own version of that agreement. And in the final analysis, the bank backed off on that and, and just let it go through pending that has to be done. But in that case, the lease has only got three or four months left on the lease anyway. So from the lease, from the property lease guy standpoint, I'm thinking, yeah, why, why do I want to change a lease that's five years old? Yeah. Make an adjustment to a lease when it needs to be revised in three months. Oh, I'll, we'll just do it all. So you look at it. Here's the thing. Everybody has their own interests at heart. And that's not an unreasonable request from that guy. Just because your bank says that you want to do something for something you want to do. <laughs> in, in a lot of cases like that, that I've worked on the, what ends up happening is they, they'll just do the lease renewal with the buyers at, at that time for a lease that comes into effect when the other one expires. Right. And that could have been done had they not been brought to their attention the day before closing. Right. <laughs> yeah. So he was kind of left out of the consideration of what was going on. Exactly. Up until the yeah. last minute when the banker says that, Oh gee, we also need this. Well, that's my point on this whole thing is looking at all of these things and the, we also need this is too late at closing. But yeah. you know, I laugh, I laugh about it. I cry about it too. But you, you think I've never been to a closing, whether it's a personal property or a home I bought or whatever, where anybody seems to have done their work ahead of time. They, have you ever been to one where they actually come prepared and they actually have it all done? the mortgage company, the title company, the, if they all seem to storm into the room at the last minute, oh, we're, I'm cutting it out in the copier. I'm doing this. I'm thinking, what are you people so, doing? But by the time I got to the end before I closed my, my brokerage office, um, I had gotten to the point where I had been shepherding my buyers and sellers towards the same set of lawyers. And, and because I had been working with the same lawyers over and over again, by, by the time I got to that last year, it was starting to happen much more smoothly. And the, the other thing that I did that other people I don't think do is whenever I was working with any lawyer, regardless of if I knew them or not, I would make them send me their paperwork, their contracts they had prepared before sending them to the other lawyer. And most of them would resist that. And I would sometimes have to actually tell my client, call your lawyer and tell him that I work for you too and that he has to send them to me. Because I would read through them as a lay person with a little bit of education on how to do these deals. And I would generally find three to five mistakes. And so if, if the lawyer sent it to me and then I highlighted things and sent it back to him to fix, then what got sent to the other attorney would be cleaner. Because if the other attorney saw those mistakes, he would call his client and say, well, they're, I don't know, they're trying to be sloppy on this. This is what they're trying to do or they're trying to pull this. Or, and, and oftentimes the lawyers are cutting and pasting other work that they've done. And you'll find names of old co other companies that aren't related to the deal will be mentioned in these papers. Or they'll put terms in them that don't match the actual um, um, you know, offer that was created because they didn't read the offer properly enough in order to match the terms into the, the you know, whether it's the um, bill of sale or, or whatever document that they're preparing. So 
I found that if I filtered the, all the legal stuff and, and went back to them with mistakes before it went to the other party, things started to go a lot more smoothly too. No, you're exactly right. And uh, having multiple readers of any document and being open to those corrections accelerates the the plan. And the more you can get up front and get everybody prepared, while trying to get people in the position to do that is exactly what you're doing. I'm just trying to help you help yourself. And, And it's just like working with attorneys is, I'm not an attorney, I'm not putting my nose into your business, the title business, attorney business, I don't want to do that. But without being an insult, let me read it. Now, in my particular case, I used to edit the newspaper in college, all right? And one of my skills is I can look at a, at a full page of paper and I can pick out every semicolon that's out of order in the whole bit. It's just something God gave me. I just look at it and I say, there's a spelling error here, this, that. People look and say, how did you find that? And it, it's, they, they come out when you, when you do that, all right? Mm-hmm. So when you have that, I, you know, you might as well take take advantage of whoever has a reading skill. Even after I do it, I make mistakes, and I give it to somebody else to read it. And I ultimately read the documents backwards in order to to, to find the errors. The, the final draft is how I do it. That's how that's my process. But nobody's trying to be a bad guy here. Mm. All the buyers, this whole list of 30 sellers, buyers, lawyers, accountants, I'm not accusing anybody of trying to do anything other than accurately serve their self-interest. Right. The challenge is, let's do it faster. (laughs) Well, and so the buyer went to another bank to get financing for receivables, but uh, why don't you tell us what ended up happening on closing day? Because I don't know if that bank was quite as ready as you thought. Well, no, the night before, the, buy, the uh, uh, buyer tells me that he, he's short money because he didn't get the receivable financing. And well, what do you mean? And then he tells me, well, the bank said that they wouldn't do the receivable financing. I'm sitting, why would you tell me that 30 days ago, all right? And whether he just found out or he was keeping it to himself because he was tight on what he was putting in the business. Well, then the first reaction I had was, wait a minute, he's just trying to finance this with other people's money. He read one of those books that you refer to from time to time about some wizard of how you buy a business with everybody else's money and never have to do anything. You just sit home and have them send you checks. You know, and, and there's plenty of those books of how to, how, to, how to take advantage of everybody else in the world. And, mm. and people read that stuff and they actually believe it can be pulled off, right? And I haven't found that in my own life, all right, that, that it can be. Ultimately, there's an accountability that pays. Yeah. Anyway, this phone call comes in the night before. And so now I'm thinking that night, oh, this is a fine thing. I got to 1 o'clock tomorrow. Now what are we going to do? And uh, the answer is the next morning I call him and I said, hey, we've got to do this. The sellers are not going to be happy, all right? And they weren't. When I called them and I said, well, there could be some this issue. They don't have money. Will you guys take paper back? Will you take, you know, finance back? And they hit the roof. All right. So then I'm saying, boy, I better call my backup buyers and see if any of them can be there. Well, then I tell the the buyer that, gee, the sellers want to close. And he's, well, if they won't do it, then we'll walk away. 
So I'm thinking, okay, now you got the bank there that's going to give you the money, but you only have part of the money and you can't carry the whole thing. So, so, they, so they had their down payment, but they were lacking the, the money for the receivables. Basically, yeah, is what it, when you do the math on it, that's about it. All right. It's because he said, I'm going to meet with my other banker this morning. Well, you don't show up at another banker's two hours before closing and expect that banker to give you right. the 30 or 40 grand that you're going to need. It just doesn't happen that way. So he comes out of that meeting, calls me about, 11, well, the banker couldn't give me the money. He's going to do it, but he's going to take two weeks and this and that and the other thing. And I said, what are we going to do? I said, I don't know. And he said, well, we'll cancel it all. I said, no, no, show up. <laughs> show up. So as I'm driving over there, I called the attorney and I said, well, we're going to, I said, they aren't going to have enough money. And I know nothing else to do. I says, write up a receivables agreement for me on a loan. Yeah. I'm going to have to loan them, loan them the, the money to do it. So they showed up, they went into the banking office, they came out with all the banking money and they came into the closing room with us. When they had, they had all the banking money and they didn't know what to do. So I went quietly to the buyer and told them that I'll finance it. So he was very happy that I'd finance it. So, so you as the broker lent him the money for the, the piece he was missing for the receivables. Exactly. And um, I, I think it's a great, uh, way to end the story. And I've been there, Paul, because I've had to do it uh, three or four times. I ended up um, lending money to buyers and getting paid over time. In all my cases, it was an installment note and I would get a check for a few hundred dollars every month, which with the up and down cash flow of the business brokerage isn't such a bad thing sometimes, but it it certainly is not very nice when you are not planning for it. In my case, all the times I did it, I knew a few weeks before that I was going to end up having to do that. And you found out the day before. And so um, what was the plan is just for them to pay you back as soon as they get their hands on the money. Uh, the note was as they collected the receivables, they would pay me. Okay. So, and that of course creates a little bit of a danger in itself because it would mean that as the receivables came in, the money would go to you instead of being available to operate the company. And so what, what happens is that it actually went to them and then they had to pay me. So the diligence I had to do was make sure that when they did collect those receivables, that they were not using it for operating cash flow, but were, uh, uh, paying me because it really was the, the receivables were assigned to me. Right. Yeah. And so and were you able to collect it all yet? Pardon? Were you able to collect it all yet? Yeah. It's all been collected. Okay. And how long did it take you? 30 days. 30 days. Okay. So out and they you got feel their, better about it now. Oh yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm at peace with it now, <laughs> but you know, it, it, like you said, it's one more surprise, one more 30 day, one more experience. And in their case, one more fortunate thing that I had the ability to actually do it. What yeah. happens if you're dealing with somebody that couldn't show up and loan them the money? Then what would happen? It would, it would, it would have not happened. It was fortunate that I had the ability to do it. Right? Yeah. So, at any rate, there are so many uh, 
little experiences, nuances, fun things, relationships uh, that I wanted to share uh, with you. And uh, originally my thought was we would make this one of those holiday calls early, but then of course that got delayed and I'm, I'm still going to put it into that series. I'm going to, I'm going to give it the last number for the 2019 because <clears throat> I think, I think it's very apropos that, you know, the, the business that was supposed to close around Thanksgiving ended up closing, you know, what was it finally in February? It must've been in February. Uh, February 4th. Yeah. So it ends up closing in February and then you have to wait another 30 days in order to collect all of your money in, in pieces as it comes in. Uh, because I think for the people listening who are either going to buy or sell, it's a great story of what they can expect to go through this. But for anyone who's listening, who's thinking they might want a career in business brokerage, I think it's, it's a real honest testimony to the reality of just how difficult it can be to make a living in this field because you, you, you can't rely on any kind of plan. Um, you know, you can, you can plan to do five, six, 10 deals a year, but as, as we've heard from Paul today, you know, those things are going to get delayed. They're going to get sidetracked and all of the different things that you brought up, um, about delays at the bank, for instance, each one of those little things they asked for, any one of them could have caused the deal to fall apart. If the, the resulting information wasn't correct. I had a client in California who bought a business up in Washington and <clears throat> this was a first for me. The SBA looked up the address of the business he was buying in some kind of database they have. And do you know what? The office is located on land that has been declared part of a floodplain. And so they wouldn't release the money the, to buy the business until the buyer had obtained a flood insurance policy and a flood insurance can, when you buy it, uh, it only comes into a force 30 days later. So you can't run and buy it when the forecast says there's going to be a bunch of rain that could cause flooding, right? And so that delayed the closing because he had to go buy the flood insurance. And then uh, I believe they had to wait until it to, for it to come into force. So, right. I, you know, something nobody would have ever had thought about. And the, the seller of the business was surprised because they had never knew about any kind of flood problem that existed in that area. So. Right. And, and of course the flood pains are, are being adjusted all the time as the environments are being adjusted. And you're right. You, you could be on what is considered dry land today. And in certain areas of the country, it could be a rated floodplain next month be, yeah. because the new surveys showed that the waters have changed. And it's pretty dramatic <laughs> what can happen. So it is a surprise. Yeah. Look, I, I want to really thank you, Paul, for, for opening up and sharing the details of, of going through this deal because, you know, a lot of the times we'll see, you know, things post deal on the internet in particular where people will say, hey, another deal was done. Congratulations, pats on the back. Here's, you know, we sold another one kind of thing. But it's very rare that people will share all the challenges, details, and give sort of the play-by-play -play of how you work through one of these things and, and what can happen. And, and I really like the fact that you highlighted that every person and every spouse of every person who's in, attached to this deal could have their own different set of goals or desires as far as the outcome of how this transaction comes. It's, you know, 
in sales training, we often talk about how um, people listen to WIIFM, what's in it for me radio. And it, that is true all the time. People are concerned about their interests and what they want to get out of a deal or what they want to have happen or, or the way they perceive the interests of their loved ones. You know, I want, you know, something good for the people that I care about. And sometimes, you know, that doesn't even jive with what the person they care about is looking for themselves. And so these things can sometimes conflict to create some of these delays. That's right. And it's dynamic. It changes. You, mm -hmm. uh, you don't know because these are elongated projects. And if you think of the description of this one, this is about a year long from the time of me engaged to the final closing. Now there's a lot of things that happens in these, I call it 30 people, the list yeah. of 30 people. There's a lot of things that happen in their lives over 12 months. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, what may be a very cooperative seller or buyer or lawyer or whatever, all of a sudden they're acting weird. Well, you have no idea that their spouse or their child has a health problem or, or they've lost money in the stock market or a coronavirus or Lord knows what happens on a daily basis. And so yeah. you're trying to manage this in whatever. And, and what looks like cooperation all of a sudden goes into conflict. And so we all have to be a bit of a psychologist and we have to be patient with each other. We have to be positive and proactive and not take just like some of those things when I found out, oh, Paul, we need this. Oh, Paul, my heart goes, oh man, why didn't you tell me about that before? What, what? And, and so you have to control yourself as a buyer, as a seller, as an attorney that, Everybody is pursuing mutual best interest. You have to assume that. And then you have to hold up your part of being that. Mm. Yeah. So if you assume everybody's positive and trying to make the thing happen and doing the right thing and being honorable, you have to do that. And then you have to be that and keep it together and it'll all come to pass. Because there, there's no secrets in these, because these things are so tightly wound with legal regulations, financial regulations, all the intermediary parties that have to be involved. You're not going to pull the wool over anybody's eyes anymore. And it's all transparent on the internet and everything else. So if, in fact, you think you can do a sneaky deal, there's no such thing. If, the word I use is, uh, quite often is collaborative. People people go into it thinking it's more like a transaction, like for a house or an automobile or something where both parties are going to be jockeying for their point of view or, or, or what happened to your point, like pulling something over on someone, but there, it's such a complex thing. It be, a, it has to end up being a collaborative process where both sides are working together to get the thing done. Um, you know, I've had sellers go in and meet with the bankers of the buyer because the banker wanted to know more details about the business. And the easiest thing to do was just say, Hey, why don't we have the sellers come in? They can answer all your questions. Right. Yes. And, and so it's working together to get this very complex thing done. Yeah. And if everybody does that, then they will go much faster and it will be uh, much more honorable. Now that the closing part for me, the satisfaction is yes, it closed. I got paid. It's complete. 
and I talked to both the sellers, they're happy. And, and I refer to spouses because one of the nice things that happened is one of the spouses got on the phone and told me how happy they were. And I had never met that spouse. So I felt good as the intermediary. I delivered for the sellers. And then I went and visited the buyers, of course, when they had the final payment of, of the financing that, that had done. And they wanted to show me the changes that they made and what their plans are. And, the version, and they were very enthusiastic about their business and what they had and what they could do with it. And said that, you know, after they get rolling, if I see other businesses that they could add on or do that, they really wanted me to watch out for them and to help that, that they were very happy with their purchase. So that summary point means it's one of those collaborative satisfactory nobody's got anguish if you may that they felt it was mistreatment or i got the better of you or any of those things and that makes me feel good that it was brought together and i think everybody in the transaction buyer sellers and all the other intermediaries if if they can all seek that level uh, business will go forward great and they'll be happy with camper. Awesome, Paul. Thank you so much. We'll talk to you later. Take care.